today we have the very special guest with us today. Uh, not so much a guest, more of a fixture around here, uh, Associate Chaplain of Worship, Brittany Martin. Please give her a warm welcome. Encourage her. Yes. Uh, like Ed mentioned, my name is Brittany. I am the Associate Chaplain of Worship here. I've been here since August, and it has been a wonderful, wonderful uh, experience so far. I'm so grateful to be here. Um, before this, I worked as the worship coordinator at my church at Fort Langley Community Church just down the road, and before that, I was a student here. I got involved in worship teams in my final year when I led Sunday Night Alive, which, quick plug, is this Sunday, 8 p.m., RGK. If you haven't been to one, please, please come and join us. Uh, it's a worship night that we hold every two weeks here. And my experience leading SNA was my introduction to leading worship mindfully and intentionally. And it sparked in me this, this passion to be a teacher and a pastor through the songs that we sing and to be a vessel of encounter. God has given us such a gift in music where we not only encounter beauty and its artistry, but it actually helps us to memorize and to deepen truths in our heart, making what we sing incredibly important. And many of the songs that we sing are, are prayers. Many of them provide language for us to pray. And uh, as the melodies ring through our minds throughout the day, I often find myself praying certain lines as they replay in my head during the day. Like today, God, let your kingdom come. May your will be done. I pray that this prayer would be ringing through our heads today. Or that line, I need you now, that declaration of surrender. This, this kind of surrender, this kind of declaration of need, it dethrones us and prepares us for the work of the Holy Spirit in what we'll be talking about today, the revival of the heart. And I don't know about you, but the word revival, it evokes a powerful emotion. When I think of revival, I think altar call. I think tears streaming down the face. I think of this worship service in a packed room. The lights are low. The voices are loud. Our hands are high. And God is there. God is moving there. But maybe you've also been in a situation where you're standing in that room completely unmoved, disconnected, distracted, your mind is elsewhere, and maybe you've even felt the resistance to the emotional pull of the music. I've been there. I've been there, too. But the packed-out room and the lighting and the music, these are not ingredients for revival. Instead, we will find, as we study Scripture and look at examples of revival, that our part to play in preparing for God to bring revival, it comes through two main things, and that is prayer and repentance. Now the root word revive, it means to live again. And to live again assumes that some kind of death has taken place. And in revival, this concept, it rings true. Historically, revivals across the globe have come out of a period of decline, of loss, or of crisis. And even now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but it feels like we are in a period of decline. We're culturally and politically divided, at war with our neighbors and family and friends. Some of us have been hosting resentment in our hearts and so much anger and emotional violence. 
the idolization of the self runs rampant and we face crisis after crisis and loss after loss, a period of decline, a need for Christ. But this is not a new human experience and in the scriptures we see this taking place as well. On many occasions, including in the book of Joel, which we'll be taking a closer look at today, we read of a period of of decline marked by sin and violence and the worship of other idols and gods, much like we see today. And we see a pattern. We see a call to repentance, and when his people repent, God shows mercy. And in Joel 2 in particular, God promises blessing, abundance, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So for some background on the book of Joel, it's, it's actually uncertain when this book was written, and we also don't know the specific sins of Israel that bring about the call to repent. So not a lot of concrete background on that front, but it does follow a format. So both chapters 1 and 2 of Joel, they follow the same design. There's an announcement of disaster in response to, to the sins of Israel, And it's followed by a call to repentance. And after that call to repentance, the prophet Joel himself repents and leads others to do the same. And following this in chapter 3, we read of God's response to his people, one of mercy and of promise. And so I'd like to read Joel 2 for us, beginning in verse 12, uh, with some commentary in between. Joel 2, verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And I want us to pay attention to this language of of turning, return to me. It highlights what repentance is. The word repentance is often translated as turn. So calls to repentance were calls to turn away from something and to turn towards God. So you'll notice that repentance, it, it isn't just this act of confession. It's, it's a turning. It's a change. It's an act of surrender. So when God asks us to repent, it's because this turning will actually align our lives with his. And it's an invitation to live not with our backs to God, but face to face with him. Return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. These are outward expressions of repentance, ones that actually they remain to be gifts to us as well so that we have a physical avenue to express godly sorrow, which is the kind of sorrow that God expresses over sin and over brokenness in the world. And this this is the type of sorrow that we're invited into when we repent and we turn towards him. And this is different from worldly sorrow because it is not rooted in shame. So return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. So this line was in response to the practice of tearing your clothes in mourning, a physical act to represent a heart of mourning. Except that here the people were abusing this outward expression in order to hide unrepentance. And so what's being addressed here is that repentance, it's not a performative action. It's about what's in your heart. And so another translation actually says, tear your hearts, not your clothes. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents 
from sending calamity. Return to the Lord. Why? Not because you're swallowed up in shame. Not because you want to be viewed as holy by others. And not because you believe God to be an angry dictator. But instead because God's very character, his nature, is one of compassion and grace. He is slow to become angry. He's so patient. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And this love far outweighs his wrath. And yet God is a God of justice, and we can actually trust him for this. We need him to be. And so the consequences of sin will remain in place, yet with hope in store. There's a very practical outworking of this. Like, you can't undo the repercussions of of your lie, your addiction, your unloving, harsh words or actions. But God, in his grace and compassion, can redeem it all. That's the type of God he is. He's not one who will reject us when we repent, when we turn and seek him, but he's the one who seeks us in return. He redeems what the enemy purposes for evil. He is faithful, trustworthy, and true. And in verse 14, Joel continues, who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, Consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children and infants. We see here that the whole community is involved at every level of spiritual maturity. Gather the children and the infants. Everyone is called to this reorientation of the heart. And verse 17, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. And the porch here represents the people. And here we see a call for intercession for the priests, the spiritual leaders who are entrusted with mediating between people and God to pray on their behalf and ask for mercy. And intercessory prayer is another key piece in revival. I think far too often we pray as functional atheists without conviction that our prayers matter in the kingdom of God. But here's the thing, God's sovereignty does not dismiss us of responsibility. In fact, God entrusts his followers with spiritual responsibility. And by our prayers, we align our will with God's and we participate in ushering in a new kingdom. And so verse 17, let the priests who minister before the Lord and us as the new priesthood, let us weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations, Why should they say among the peoples, there is no God, or where is their God? And in verse 18, we read the Lord's answer. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, saying, I am sending you new grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully, never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. And he goes on to list the blessings and provisions in store and ends with this statement. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
God's response to repentance is a promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, one that unites all people of all age and status and background. And there's a promise of salvation here for all who call on the name of the Lord. And in Acts 2, in Pentecost, when we see the the Holy Spirit comes upon all the believers, the Apostle Paul quotes this passage, and he says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel 2 points ahead to the fulfillment of this promise given by God to meet repentance with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Joel 2 points ahead to another act of obedience made on our behalf. Christ's obedience to God on the cross is proper repentance. Christ on the cross repents on our behalf. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this, this perfect repentance is what evokes the greatest revival of all. One that we are still experiencing and one that we have access to this day. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So I'd like to invite you to to respond today and to ask the question, where are you facing? Where is your back turned to? And with me to, to pray this prayer of surrender. So I invite you to close your eyes and open your hands as a posture of surrender. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, but instead, Lord, would you restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within me. It's in your holy and precious name, Lord, that we pray. Amen.